Please join me in praying. Lord God, I thank you for the good news of the gospel. I pray for each one of us this morning that we would clearly understand what it is, that it would elevate our view of you and your majesty and our desperate need for you. Lord, help me now as I preach, for I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Some of you will know the name Martin Lloyd-Jones, who in the last century was a very prominent preacher in London. Um, Martin was a physician who then later became a preacher. And since he was such a, a, a great preacher and a smart man, he actually was called the doctor. They just referred to him as the doctor because he was the physician, but then he became really a doctor of theology. And his pulpit ministry was something like three decades long in the same church, and it affected a lot of people. It was really powerful. But early on, he learned something about his ministry from an experience he had in his home uh, country of Wales. He had gone to a church in a town called Bridge End in South Wales and preached. And when his sermon was done, the minister of that church came up to him and said this, Martin, the cross and work of Christ appear to have little place in your preaching. You never want to hear that as a preacher, that the cross and work of Christ have little place in your preaching. So he went home and went to a bookstore and asked the proprietor to give him the two most popular books on the atonement of Christ. And with his usual exacting mind, he went into his study and would not stop studying until he got this sorted. So he skipped lunch, he skipped tea, and by dinner time, his wife was so concerned about his focus and his behavior, she actually called her brother and said, should I call a physician to come and take a look at him? Something is not right. But in fact, everything was right and getting even better. He came out later that evening with this observation, I have found the real heart of the gospel and the inner meaning of the Christian faith. And from that point forward, the cross of Christ was the central thing he preached, which is what the Apostle Paul said, we preach Christ and Him crucified. If we lose the cross, we've lost the faith totally. In fact, the cross of Christ is the central theme of this entire book. And it's strange to me that in churches all across our country, the cross gets pushed off to the side. The idea of wrath, the idea of death, the idea of sacrifice, all of that is just taken over by some bland sense of God is love. And love, 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 but never the cross. And I think part of that is because the cross makes us look at our own guilt, and we don't like that. In fact, in order to get into this, I'm going to have to deal with the word blood. And it's purely coincidental that last week I showed you a picture of a, of a heart, a big red picture up there, and this week I'm talking about blood. It's, I'm just following where the texts are that were selected. This is not, you know, it's not my plan. I'm not on some cardiovascular kick right now, I promise. My diet will reflect that. But up here, I need to talk about blood today. And when I talk about blood, I'm really talking about death, because as Leviticus says, the, the life blood, the life of a person or a life of an animal is in its blood. So when we talk about blood, we're also talking about death. And in the Bible, 425 times the word blood occurs. In the letter to the Hebrews, it occurs 23 times. And in chapter 9, our, our chapter for this week, half of those occurrences are there. 12 times in chapter 9, the word blood is mentioned. Hebrews 9.25 is the, is the verse in here that jumps off the page at us. And it might have caught you a little bit off guard even. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 
Let me say that again. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. I'd like to suggest to you today that forgiveness always costs a fee, and God pays that fee for us. For us, when we forgive someone, we are giving up the right to get even, but it's not quite the same with God, because we're sinners forgiving another sinner. God is holy and perfect. So what I have to do today to explain that verse is I have to look at the topic of sin, and I have to look at the topic of God's holiness. Sin is a word that is like falling away from our society. We don't talk about it very much. And when we do, it's like with a wink. You know, Sin City, what happens in Las Vegas stays in Vegas. It's like mischievous fun or a little bit of lighthearted rebellion or something. As if those sins don't follow you home on the airplane and wreck your life and put you at odds with God. We downplay this idea of sin and we don't like it. In the Bible, there are at least five Greek words that can be translated as sin. And I feel like because the word has lost its meaning, I need to define those. The first three in the group all have similar meanings. They are departure from a known standard of righteousness. So we know what is right and we depart from it. Another one is trespassing beyond a known boundary. We know we're allowed over to here and we step past that. That's another Greek word for, uh, that's, that's translated as sin. Another one is disregard for known law, all law. We just disregard laws. We are against the law. And so this plays out in tons of different ways in our lives. I'll go back to St. Augustine and his confessions and his pairs. As a boy, he climbed over the fence into his neighbor's orchard and stole pears with a group of boys that he was hanging out with. He gets home to find, one, those pears aren't even ripe, and two, he had ripe, better pears at home that were his to eat. And he says, I did it just because of the boundary. I just wanted to break the rule. So sin isn't just breaking the rule, it's also the inclination to do so. And the scripture teaches us that we have that inclination. We are selfish. We, we want what we want, and so we don't care about the laws. We don't care about the boundaries. We don't care about um, what is known to be right. We do what we want to do, which is usually not what the right thing is. So you can think through ways in your life that you have stolen the pears, so to speak. Is there a time, maybe recently, maybe a while ago, where you knew what was good and right? And I'm not saying accidentally. I'm saying you knew it was right, and you did the other thing. That's sin, playing itself out. Now, what's interesting in the scripture about sin, in particular with King David, is Psalm 51, the most penitential psalm there is. We, we use it every Good Friday and a number of other times in Lent. In Psalm 51, David, the king, is repenting of having committed adultery and then murdering the husband of the woman that he committed adultery with. Bathsheba is her name and Uriah was his name. And when he repents of this sin, you know what he says? Against you, Lord, and only you have I sinned and done what is evil. And you think, well, what about Bathsheba and Uriah? Certainly, he sinned against them. But what he's saying is, ultimately, it was rebellion against your law. God, your law says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, and I rebelled against it. I did the thing you told me not to do. I did what I wanted to do, not what you wanted to do. Against you only have I sinned. Now, Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, sums this up really well. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. 
connected to blood, death. Jump all the way back to Genesis 2. Do you remember the very first law, the very first rule God gave humans? Eat of any tree you want in the garden, but not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, surely you will die. That was the result. You will die. So going all the way back to there, there's this truth that death is what we deserve for being sinners. We know that we are sinners. We feel it. It haunts us. It follows us everywhere. And now here's the tension. So we've got a sin problem, but God is holy and cannot bear to be in the presence of sin. So consider these things. In Exodus 19.24, this is where Mount Sinai happens and God gives the law. He tells Moses to put a barrier, a fence, around the bottom of the mountain and says, don't let the priests or the people break through and come toward me or, my, or I will break out against them. God's holiness will actually break out against them. His holiness cannot stand to be in the presence of sin. Or Habakkuk, the, the minor prophet, puts it this way. He says of the Lord, your eyes are purer than to see evil. You cannot look upon evil. He can't even look upon it. So we have this situation where God is holy and we're sinful, but he's loving. So what what do we do with that? It, sometimes people, when they hear about this idea of blood, they think, why can't God just, you know, go, it's all good, I forgive you? Because if that were to happen, he would actually be compromising his own very identity as holy and just and good. There's always a fee when forgiveness happens. And so who's going to pay that fee? How is that going to work? Now, something that, um, if you're going to preach the cross as the central message, it pushes you back to ask about why death, why blood, why the sacrifice. And John Stott, the Anglican scholar, summarizes this very well in his book, The Cross of the Christ. The Cross of Christ. He summarizes it this way and says, from a cluster of words in Ezekiel and Jeremiah and other places, that God is merely affirming that he must be true to himself. So consider this. To sum up these words, God is provoked to jealous anger over his people by their sins. Once kindled, his anger burns, and it's not easily quenched. He unleashes it, pours it out, and spends it. This threefold vocabulary vividly portrays God's judgment as arising from within him, out of his own holy character, as wholly consonant with it, and therefore as inevitable. If God were to say, it's all good, it would be impossible for him to do that because in him is wrath against sin building up and burning like a fire. It will come out. So let me give you an illustration of what this is like for us. Most people come at the, at, to church or to Christianity with this kind of a, uh, a difference. Here's me and here's God. But then we start to look at the scriptures and there are things about blood and no forgiveness without blood and wrath and fury and holiness and all of a sudden, we start to realize that God is actually more like up here, and then I'm actually more like down here. The longer we study this and the more we look at it, we start to realize this truth. I am far more sinful than I realized, and I am loved more than I ever imagined possible. All of that is related to God's holiness and his love for us and the need for us to have that price paid. This is actually good news, but to get to the good news, it's kind of painful, right? Because I have to deal with the fact that my sin and your sin put Christ on that cross. But I get ahead of myself a little bit. 
I want to stay in, in the text. Go to Hebrews, page 1006, and I want to show you how Christ is greater. Jesus is greater. That's our theme here. Jesus is actually greater than the old covenant system. And these, these, um, this audience of the letter to the Hebrews were fully steeped in the old covenant system, where there was the tabernacle, there were tons of different offerings, there were priests that did different things, there was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. They had all these rituals and regulations. Read Leviticus if you want to see how intense and specific it was. And they knew that. And here was their temptation. They were being persecuted for their faith, and they were tempted to fall back into the old covenant ways. And the author is saying, don't do that. Jesus is greater on every account. So consider just a couple of things. First of all, there was a place. You've got a holy God. You've got sinful people. God made provisions so that we could approach him. So he set up the tabernacle which then later became the temple. The tabernacle had a holy of holies in the middle where the Ark of the Covenant was, and then it had an outer court, and people could do certain things in certain areas, and only the high priest could go in on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, into the Holy of Holies with blood from a bull and offer a sacrifice. This had to be repeated over and over and over every year. Bishop N.T. Wright says this, if your car's having a problem and you bring it to a mechanic and he fixes it, and six months later, you have to bring it back to him for the same problem. And six months later, you have to bring it back to him for the same problem. Did he solve it? No. He didn't fix the problem. He temporarily satisfied it, but he didn't ultimately fix it. And the old system required that, going back every year. So what Hebrews says, this is um, Hebrews 9, it says in verse 9, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But they deal only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. It was a temporary system that God set up until Christ could come and perfect it. It only dealt with the body and externals. It didn't deal with the conscience. It didn't deal with the heart of the matter that we talked about last week. So God set up that system and he paid for it with the blood of bulls and goats on our behalf then, and then he perfected it when Christ came. So consider this. It says in verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest on, of the good things, keep in mind, the old covenant was good. These are good things. It wasn't bad. It was just inadequate. God gave it. It was temporary. When he came as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands. Okay, that's really confusing, right? What is this tent that's made with hands? It's referring to the tabernacle. The Israelites actually had to build a tent, and then God's glory would come into it. And he's saying the high priest would go into that tent that was made with human hands and offer something that only was external. But Christ, who is greater, went into a different kind of tent, not made with human hands, the very dwelling place of the Father. He went into heaven to offer his sacrifice for us. It was that much greater. Not only that, he, instead of offering the blood of bulls, he offered his own blood. His own life was sacrificed for us. A perfect offering so that it could go to the very heart. And then in verse 13, it says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify, which means to make holy, for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works. So not only did he go into heaven, and not only did he bring his own blood, it was once for all, 
and it dealt with our conscience. It went all the way into our very heart. This is really good news. All of a sudden, we realize that God is so much bigger, and our sin is that much bigger, and suddenly the cross starts getting bigger and bigger as the very central thing of all that we believe, all that matters. So for us, what does it do? What purifies our conscience? It actually starts to heal us from the inside out when we realize this truth. It sets apart our work as being fruitful instead of fruitless. So this whole idea of purifying our conscience from dead works. You've, you've done some dead works. Do you know what they look like? Trying to be a good person so God will accept you. That is a dead work. Instead, what happens is Christ does the work for you. He pays the cost for the forgiveness and gives it to you as a gift. And now when we serve him, we do it out of gratitude. We say, thank you, God. Now our works are fruitful. They're flowing out of God's work. They're what he has empowered through the cross, through his blood. So Romans 8 summarizes it this way, Romans 5, 8 rather, that God shows his love for us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. God pays the fee for forgiveness. What do we do then? Well, one, we're called to give up the right to get even. So when somebody else sins against you, you have to give up the right to get even. God has already paid enough on your behalf, so you've got plenty to do that with. God has forgiven your sin, which was bigger than anything someone else could do to you. So in the gospel, you have the resources to forgive others, and you have a command to forgive others. Another thing is, we're now worshiping God as he is. Most people are making God in our own image. We want to soften his wrath. We don't like the idea that our sin causes wrath in him to burn that will come out. We want to say God is love, and we want to ignore basically the rest of the Bible, which means when we read this, it doesn't make any sense. There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. But God did that. He shed his blood for us. He is a God of love and wrath, and his love and wrath are intimately connected. You can't have just one without the other. It doesn't make sense. And then finally, he calls us to witness. It changes us in such a way that we now have something to bring to others. And as 3 for 30 Sunday is asking, I'm asking you to pray for three people to invite them to come to Alpha. It's not that Alpha matters so much. It's that I want them to hear the gospel, and it's a really helpful place. It's the kind of place where you can ask questions like, why can't God just forgive like we have to forgive? Why doesn't he practice what he preaches? It deals with those type of questions, and it's really fruitful. I'm, I'm going to show you a video. This is a testimony. It's about three minutes long of somebody who who started like this. Listen to his testimony. This guy's a surfer from Southern California. He starts out saying, yeah, I was a little bit rebellious. And then as he starts to talk about what his little bit of rebelliousness did, he realized I was selfish. I alienated my brother. I hurt people. I hurt myself. And then I met Christ through an alpha. And all of a sudden, the gospel becomes big. And he starts to see how he was transformed in such a way that other people went, if God did that in your conscience, I want it too. That's part of the witness. So go ahead and play this video, watch this, and I'm gonna explain what we're gonna do with the three for 30 cards. My name is Richard Maxson. I'm a hairstylist. I grew up in Orange County. Um, I like to surf a lot, and I've been, and am an alpha host. Grew up Christian. Um, was homeschooled, so I was super sheltered, but I always kind of had a little bit of rebel in me. Got into drinking, and from 21 to 26, I pretty much blacked out. So it was like five nights a week. It was just going hard, um, but it was empty. 
I was a terrible older brother. I was super selfish. Uh, I didn't even know it, but my youngest brother didn't even think that I wanted to have anything to do with him. And I just felt this hole inside of me get bigger and bigger and bigger. And um, I got to the point where I didn't think I was Christian anymore. I didn't think I was saved. I didn't want to ask Jesus for forgiveness because um, I was going to do it again the next day. And I'd seen a lot of hypocrisy. Then got asked to come to Alpha actually by some people that I used to work with. And I came with a pocket full of questions to disprove and fight against um, everything that the church was. And they didn't treat me the way that I thought they were going to. I thought they'd be able to see all the dark, gross, nasty, horrible things that I thought I was. I went on the weekend away, which I didn't want to go on. I tried to look for every excuse not to go. Just think like, these people are weird. What's up with all the accents? Like, I want to go home. And I stayed. And I got to the point where I'm like, all right, Holy Spirit, if you're real, let's do this. And he showed up. And ever since then, I haven't been the same. So then I got my brother back. He's the one who always gets me. I guess just the change was so dramatic that he's like, whatever Alpha is, I want to do it. Because whatever happened to you must be real. Man. So transitioning to helping out with Alpha was not too difficult because I just really wanted to be someone that was there and available and help and they made it really seamless for me to kind of step into helping. The culture of empowerment with Alpha seems to me that they're just really trying to show you that you've got everything that you need to help other people find Jesus. We're not just going to be Alpha inside of ourselves, inside of our churches, but we're going to raise people up and we don't know where everyone's going. Some people will stick around and some people are going to go out into the city and society and the world and just continue to do Alpha in homes and just show people who Jesus really is. Did you see, even as he's telling his testimony, the progression of understanding of the depth of his problem and of grace? I had a little bit of rebelliousness. I was drinking five nights a week until I blacked out. Then I realized how selfish I was. I alienated my brother. I, I just, and then even when he's invited, the sin in him caused him to not want to go. There's a reluctance to receive this. But here's the thing about God. He's been called the hound of heaven because he pursues us. He's chasing us down. And you might be in that place right now where you're like, oh, I don't want to do Alpha. I don't, I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure about this. Just give in and come to him. It's good. It changed that guy's life and his brother's like, yeah, I, if, that, if that's what God can do in your life, I want that too. But he had to ask questions. He had to wrestle with this. And he was surprised to find a place where nobody would judge him. And the reason they didn't judge him is because they were all right where he was. We know what that's like. That's what Alpha's about. That's what the witnessing to the faith is like. It's one person who was lost and got found saying, come with me, I can show you this. So what we're going to do now is we're going to pray. We're going to listen. I'm going to ask Jessica and Scott to lead a song, kind of a quieter song. And I want you to take that card and you're going to write your three names on the plastic piece for you to keep. 
and then you're going to tear off the end that has the little hole in it, and you're going to write your three, just the first names. This is, the Lord knows who they are, and you know who they are. And you're going to hold on to that until communion. And when we come up for communion, you'll put it in these three baskets at the front of each row. And then what we're going to do is we're going to hang it on that, that wall over there on the pegboard. And as a church, we're going to be praying for 30 days for these names. We're praying specifically for God to open up an opportunity for you to say, hey, you should come to Alpha join my group, or my church is doing this thing. Or even if you get the opportunity, you should say, let me tell you why I'm a Christian. Don't wait for Alpha. If they're ready, tell them about it right there, and then invite them to Alpha. So let's now um, reflect and think through who the names are that we're going to pray for for a month, and then write those down.